It's the most highly anticipated verse in all of the Bible. It's the verse that the people of God waited 400 years to hear. Last week, we wrapped up our sermon, which was entitled Minor Prophets, Major Message, and we ended with the book of Malachi. And Malachi was a book that was full of truth bombs, where he was just sharing the Lord's heart directly to the Lord's people. And some of the things that he had to say were comforting, and some of them were very, very challenging. The kinds of things that only God can get away with saying, because they were so personal and potentially so hurtful, but yet so helpful to the continued growth and health of the nation of Israel. But Malachi also ended with a promise of someone who would come in the power and the spirit of Elijah, who Jesus interpreted to be John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, according to Malachi's prophecy, had one job, and that job was to restore the hearts of the fathers to their sons. Because that was God's heart with his people. He wanted to be restored to his people. He wanted his people's hearts to be sensitive to him as his heart was sensitive to them. And so the first message of Christmas that we talked about last week was the message of John the Baptist. And it was his job, according to the prophesy, the prophecy found in the last book of the Old Testament, to come in the spirit and power of Elijah the prophet and restore the hearts of parents to their children. And then it got real quiet. It got 400 years quiet. And in that 400 years, between 400 B.C. and the birth of Jesus Christ, there was no prophetic word given. There was no message of God recorded. Absolute silence. Now, it wasn't that there wasn't anything going on. Uh, Alexander the Great came and invaded Jerusalem, followed by the Romans. And so there was years of distress where the people of God were crying out, where is God's presence? Where is his voice? Where is his guidance? We are waiting for the one to come with the power and spirit of Elijah to restore our hearts to our Heavenly Father. But we have Alexander the Great and the Roman Empire instead. We don't think this is what Malachi was talking about. 400 years of prophetic biblical silence broken by the verse that I'm going to share with you in just a moment. When the, when the, the men and the women got together to put the Bible together, they chose the Gospel of Matthew to be first for a reason. Because right out of the gate, there was one verse that they wanted the people of God to understand was so powerful that it was worthy of breaking the silence of 400 years. And it's going to begin a, a sermon series that we're going to start today and take us right through the Christmas season. It's entitled The Narratives of Joseph or the Joseph Narratives. It's the gospel according, it's the, the Christmas story according to the gospel of Matthew. And the 400 years of prophetic silence were broken by this amazing, powerful verse found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you're like, uh, I know I'm supposed to be excited right now because you kind of built that up to be a big deal, but that's really boring to me. <laughs> it actually has the word historical in it. Like there's nothing exciting about that verse at all. Why on earth would God in his sovereignty allow his Bible to be put together where there's 400 years of prophetic silence broken by that verse? Which is then followed by a list of 42 begats. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Just out of curiosity this morning, uh, James and Cassie, are you still in the room somewhere? Okay, so um, walk me back as far as you can, your father's name, your father's father's name, your father's father's name. Let's see how far you can go. So your dad's name was, is? James Joseph, okay. 
And, oh, okay, we, since we have James Joseph here, we might go further than your grandfather. Let's see. But Cassie, you're, so James Joseph was begat by... James Joseph, you were begat by... George Joseph Fallon and Allen, Joseph Allen, and Joseph Allen was begat by... <laughs> okay. All right, Lundstrom's. I know we've got a couple generations of... So we made it three generations. We made it three begats. Okay. Lundstrom's or Tyler and Audrey still in the room? Are they still here? Okay, good. Tyler, you were begat by that guy. And Glenn was begat by Robert. And, and did you know that, Tyler? Okay. And, and Robert was begat by Edwin. We love Edwin. Edwin was begat by. <laughs> now, now I know we ha any lunchers want to help Glenn out here a little bit. So we made it back. Let's see. It was it's Tyler, Glenn, Robert, and Ed. so we made it four generations with the lunchers with a little help. So let's give these families a round of applause. On a day when we are dedicating their children in the house of the Lord, we're lucky if we can get four generations. And Matthew begins his gospel with 42. 42 begats that begin with Abraham, go 14 generations, find David in the middle, go another 14 generations to the exile, then go another 14 generations, then comes up to Joseph, who was known as the father of Jesus Christ. We can't go back four generations, never mind 42. What's the point? Why is it so important to break 400 years of prophetic silence by something that we can't do four times, but Matthew does it 42? And, it's, and the clue is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Look at the two names that were given here, the three names actually. The historical record of Jesus Christ, whom we know of as the Messiah, the King, our Savior. We're going to be talking more about that today. The Son of David... The son of Abraham. The reason these 42 begats are so important is because Abraham was the receiver of the promise to be a people. That God was going to call a people to himself. And Abraham was the first. He called Abraham to himself, called him to a new land, and promised him that his children would outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And so Matthew begins with reminding the people of God that Jesus is a direct lineage of, descendant of, Abraham, who received a powerful promise from God to be a people. And so most of us are familiar with that. We understand that to be a Hebrew, to be a Jew, it means you trace your lineage back to Abraham. But he also mentions King David. So Matthew is referring to the two powerful promises that define the nation of Israel, the first being the Abrahamic covenant, which says, I'm going to call a people to myself. Abraham, of course, received that covenant. The second is the Davidic covenant, where God promised to David that his presence would be forever found in David's family, that there would always be a ruler in David's family to provide and protect for the people, but also as a symbol of God's presence amongst the people that he called themselves out for. The most highly anticipated verse of the Bible is so powerful because it refers to the two promises that define what it means to be a person of faith. That we are known as a people who belong to God, who's, who is daily in presence with that very same God that called us out. This is what it meant to be a Jew. 
and we know that this is what it means to be a person of faith, to be a Christian as well. But the promise that we're not very familiar with is the one that was given to David. See, David had a problem. We know that he was the shepherd boy, that he was the youngest of seven brothers. We know that he was the one that kind of got sent out for the chores that nobody else wanted to do. We know that his brothers were called into battle, and David was sent by his dad to bring provisions to his brothers. We know that in the process of doing that, he was a little bit cheeky, and he ended up in personal combat with the Philistine hero. And we're all familiar with the story of David and Goliath when he was just a teenager, just like the men that were up here on the platform this morning leading us. David was about the same age. And we're familiar with that story that took him then into the palace and then ultimately to the throne. And the Lord basically reminds David throughout his life that I took you from watching your father's sheep, the youngest of seven, and I placed you on the throne of Israel. And he gave David great success. And it's actually known, David's reign right around 1000 BC is known as the golden age of Israel's history. They were never safer or better provided for or closer to God than they were right around 1000 BC when David was reigning. But David had a problem. In all of his success and in all of his wealth, he had been able to build himself a palace made out of cedar, which is a, a, a symbol of luxury. It's a symbol of opulence. It's a symbol of stability in the ancient world. And here was David's problem, and he talked to his friend Nathan the prophet, and he said this, Here I live in a palace that I have built for myself, made out of cedar, and yet the, the tent of God, God's presence amongst our people, resides in a tent that was made 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, 600 years ago, by Moses out in the desert. Why does our God reside in a tent made of animal skins, and I, the king, who served this God, live in a palace made of cedar. And Nathan said, do whatever is on your heart, because the Lord is with you. And so David began to make plans for a temple. And then the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, David is not the man to build me a house. He is a man of warfare, and there's too much blood on his hands. But I appreciate his heart, and I appreciate his desire for me to be present in a permanent way in a beautiful temple amongst my people. Here's my message for David. He's not going to build me a house. I'm going to build him a house. Let's take a look at that account in Scripture because it has everything to do with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and why it's the most highly anticipated verse in Scripture. Not just because God called a people to his name, he also promised his presence through Abraham and then through David. If you have your Bibles this morning, join me in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The words will also be on the screen. But listen to what God told David that was a resolution to David's problem, which is, it's not right that I would live in a palace of cedar and God would live in a tent made of animal skins. Here is God's response to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. This is the Lord speaking. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, uh, uh, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's a prophecy that was not only true to Solomon, who was the son of David, but it's also because there's this aspect of it where it's an eternal promise. It's a forever promise that we understand and became identified by the people of God, the Jews, that this was a promise that was also true for the Messiah. 
that there would be a king of Israel whose reign would be forever. And yes, Solomon built a temple, but the house that was established forever is a house that would be established forever because of the Messiah. It goes on to say in verse 16, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Why were the people of God so excited with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which simply says, the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, because it identified and reminded them of the power of God's promises to them. Number one, that they would be a people because Abraham was promised that by God. And number two, that they would be in God's presence forever, according to the promise that was given by David. You're not going to build... I, you're not going to build a house for me. I am going to build a house for you, meaning I'm going to establish my presence through the members of your family forever. This was a very exciting verse. They've been waiting 400 years to hear this verse. That's why there are 14 generations split by three different divisions, so that it would be easy to memorize all of the begats, those 42 begats, because as they went through those 42 begats, it's as if they were hearing, I promise. I promise, I promise, I promise. Through every generation, going from Jesus himself all the way back through David to Abraham. Does that help a little bit? That verse doesn't strike us as very exciting at all. But when a Jew heard the name of Abraham and then David, they knew that they were talking about a promise to be a people special and holy to God forever. That God's presence would always dwell with them. See, David's problem was resolved in a promise. I want your presence here, and you deserve better than a tent made by animal skins. And God said, you do deserve my presence here. I'm going to be with your family forever. I promise it. The national peace and security of Israel are linked to the house of David. That is what the Davidic covenant means. That promise that God made to David, that their national security, that their national well-being, that their national identity, that their peace and security would always be linked to a descendant from the house of David. And Matthew is making the case to first century believers and non-believers that Jesus is the answer, the ultimate resolution of that promise made not just to Abraham, but also to David. Well, yay for the Jews. Yay for the people of promise. Yay for the ones who are able to celebrate in the temple. But you see, Matthew had a problem. Even though he was a Jew... He had been separated from the people of God. He had been separated from the presence of God. Let's read about it. Matthew chapter 9. In verses 9 through 12, Matthew writes his story, his testimony of meeting Jesus in the gospel. And it's so powerful for us and so important this morning as we're talking about God's presence amongst his people. Because Matthew had been removed from the presence of his people. From the presence of his God by his occupation and life's choices. You see, he was a tax collector for the invading Roman army. And so he was labeled as a traitor. He was known as a man who worked for the bad guy. He was the one who made sure that people paid their taxes to the Roman government as a Jew. And they couldn't, they couldn't fake Matthew out because he understood the language and the custom and the culture... And so the taxes that he levied were actually paid to the Romans, and he was viewed as worse than an unbeliever by his occupation. You see, he was removed 
from the people of God. He was outside of this promise. He was outside of this lineage. But listen to how Jesus resolved Matthew's problem in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the table uh, at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he, Matthew, got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came as guests to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your teacher eat with those who are outside of the presence of God? We know that they're Jews by birth. They're part of the Abrahamic covenant. They look like Jews. They sound like Jews. They smell like Jews. They talk like Jews. They read like Jews. But they are outside of the presence of God. They're not under the Davidic covenant because they have removed themselves and are actually harming the people of promise. Why does your rabbi, if he's so great, spend so much time with those who are outside of the promise of David, that are outside of the presence of God? But when he heard this, verse 12, he said, Those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. Go and learn what this means. And he quotes a minor prophet. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. David had a problem in that he desired God's presence in a permanent way, and it was resolved by a promise. David's problem was resolved by a promise. Matthew's problem was resolved in a person. A person who extended God's presence to him even though he was a sinner. By choice, outside of the presence of God, even though by birth he was in the, the people of God. You see, the personal peace and security of Matthew are linked to Jesus the son of David. Jesus extended God's presence to Matthew even though he was outside of it by his own decisions. He was born to the right people, but his own decisions took him outside of the promise of relationship. And yet Jesus, during his time on earth, extended that to Matthew by simply saying, I didn't come for those who don't need help. I came for those who do. And so we see Matthew's problem being removed from the people of God because of his own personal decisions was resolved in a person. We begin to see in this genealogy how God is closing the gap between people who may or may not be in relationship with David, may or may not be in the presence of God by their own moral decisions, but how does God close the gap with those of us who are not Jews by birth? The genealogy continues in Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, you see the 42 generations assure us of the one man that matters. And with this idea, with this thought, we're going to wrap up our time together this morning. So my favorite worship team in all of the land, if you come on up here. I love these guys. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning, and thank you for taking us out as well. Matthew chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, details the people who were closest to David, the one who desired a personal, permanent relationship with God, but was not given the privilege of doing it himself. He was not allowed to build that temple, yet his family received the promise that God's presence would always be found on the planet through his lineage. His family was established. I'm not going to build, you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. David received that promise. The people who were closest to
to him as recorded in Matthew's genealogy. Listen to this. It may not mean anything to you at first, but find the power of the gospel here because we're wrestling with the question. We know that through Jesus, we can close the gap through our personal decisions and become people of God's presence. That was Matthew's experience, but he was still a Jew. What about for those of us who have no idea? We don't even go back four generations, never mind 42. What about us who just simply don't know? Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. A couple remarkable things about those two verses. This is why this starts the New Testament. First remarkable thing is that women are mentioned. That's completely out of the tradition of the day. In a list of fathers, why are the mothers included? Because Matthew is trying to make a point. Rahab survived the invasion of Jericho because she made a decision of faith as she sheltered the spies. Was she a Jew? No, she was not. She was a Canaanite. Yet she married this guy named Salmon. They had a son named Boaz, who fathered Obed by a lady named Ruth. There's a book of the Bible by that name, right? Is Ruth a Jew? No, she is not. She is a Moabite, an enemy of the Jews, who made a decision of faith to take care of her mother-in-law, even though her family stayed in Moab. She joined her mother-in-law and provided her. She became the mother of Obed, who fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. The people closest to King David, the ultimate promise of God to always be present in a family was given to a man whose grandparents, specifically his grandmothers, were the furthest thing from a Jew. Why does Matthew include these women in this genealogy? Because he knows that Jesus can close the gap when a person has made decisions of faith or decisions that are outside of faith. But Matthew also knows that Jesus can close the gap by those of us who have no hope of ever knowing God at all by our life circumstances and where we were born. Situations beyond our control. You see, the 42, when we go back and take a close look at it, assure us of the one, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ is a promise that anyone who believes can become not just a person of God, but have a personal relationship with God as he dwells with them forever, just like he promised Abraham, just like he promised David. It is possible. The 42 remind us and assure us and reassure us of the one. Ladies and gentlemen, to just wrap it all up, it doesn't matter the decisions that you've made. It doesn't matter who your mom and your dad are. The only thing that separates you from the loving presence of your Heavenly Father is one decision. Doesn't matter your background. Doesn't matter your occupation. The promise made to David and the promise made to Abraham is the good news that we preach today because of Jesus Christ. That's where the Christmas story of Joseph begins. Because it was prophesied that John the Baptist would come and reconcile the hearts of the fathers to the children. That message that's preached through that genealogy is a message of reconciliation. And so this morning, maybe if you've never realized you were that close to God because you thought your decisions or your lineage separated you, I would just implore you to make a simple prayer of faith, just like Rahab did, just like Ruth did. The grandmothers of David, the one to whom this great promise was made, cry out to the Lord. It sounds something like this. Heavenly Father, I know that by birth and by choice, I do not deserve you. But I know that those things are not more powerful than the decision that you've made to be reconciled to those of us who call to you in faith through Jesus Christ. And so count me in. I'm calling this morning. 
I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I turn from my lousy decisions and I'm not ashamed of my lineage anymore because I'm now counted as one of your sons and as one of your daughters. And maybe this morning has been a long time since you've been feeling separated by God for a number of different reasons. And you realize this morning, what decision of faith is all that separates us? And so perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time now, but you have not felt close to God. One decision of faith will draw us close to his heart because he has promised to be, that we are promised to be his people. And he has promised to be present with us through the power of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time together, refreshing ourselves in the power of your word. And Lord, like so many things in life, we're confronted with things that don't sound like they're going to be encouraging or don't sound like they're going to be powerful or don't sound like they're going to be of you at all. And yet, when the closer we look and the more time we spend in your presence, the greater we are reminded of how you are working in our life. And so, Father, whether for salvation this morning for the first time or a rededication or a resoftening of our hearts, we cry out to you and say, Father, we want to be known as your people who are filled with your presence because we've placed our faith in your son, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We ask these